so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. The mic is hot. Don't we need like one of those things that comes on when it says recording so that we all always know when? Mm-hmm. We do. Isn't there like a red light that's supposed to come on somewhere? Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to put that in here. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, as always, should be no surprise, is Brent Leatherwood. Looking very dapper, I might say. Listeners cannot see, but you have on a tie and a actually ironed white shirt buttoned down. <laughs> well, wait a second. Do I not usually wear iron shirts? Are you accusing me of wearing wrinkly shirts? I don't know. Do you iron your shirts or do you I buy... I do iron my shirts. Uh, what are the shirts you can buy that don't wrinkle? The wrinkle-proof? You know, wrinkle-free, yeah. But even still, you, you, still need to, you still need to iron them. Do you iron your jeans? I do not iron my I, jeans. I did know someone who ironed their jeans. Doesn't yeah. do that anymore, but... No. Okay, well, it's just nice to see you not dressed in Braves gear or, you know, you actually have your hair done, clean shaven, just you, so you our listeners... Act, you act like these <laughs> they're are... They're going to think you're are, a slob. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think if they follow you on any form of social media, they know that you are not a slob. <laughs> and I do want to let our listeners know that today... Uh, because you have a meeting, our, when we're recording this, we are recording it in a little bit of a different format. So we're going to record my section. You'll hear Brent. Then we're going to record our lunchroom. You'll hear the two of us, obviously. But for the culture section, you'll probably just hear Brent talking about his items that he wants to share with us. So you, just in case you're wondering why I disappear for the culture section, that's why that happens. So let's go ahead and get started with what's been happening lately, and we are going to begin with what the ERLC has been talking about this week. So the first article that I want to highlight is by Casey McCall, a pastor in Kentucky, and it is titled, How the Cooperative Program Has Funded SBC Missions, A Historic Dilemma and the Southern Baptist Solution. This article I really like because it is just, like you said, a historic look at the trouble with funding missions, and he starts with the Baptist Missionary Society and funding. And so this involves William Carey, the father of modern missions, and the trouble that they were having funding the Baptist Missionary Society. And then in walks nearly a century later after the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society, Lottie Moon, the American missionary to China, who was sent by the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. So she was laboring hard to secure funding for missions, and um, lamented the shortage of financial contributions. So then then they came up with this just 
amazing solution called the Cooperative Program that Brent, you and I, and so many Southern Baptists have benefited from over the past many, many years. We are so thankful. And so I would encourage you to read this history and just to be thankful again for the wisdom that the Lord gave for this Louisiana pastor, M.E. Dodd, who proposed this program and that we've been able to um, send missionaries out from because of over these years. The cooperative program is one of the greatest ideas for spreading the gospel that has been devised uh, by man. The cooperative program annually funds over 3,500 missionaries on the field, church plants uh, across the country, uh, our theological education with our seminaries, the, the benefits of the cooperative program, the ways that Baptists come together, pool our resources, and fund the great commission work of the SBC is, it's awe-inspiring. And, um, you know, we have discussions and sometimes disagreements about lots of things. Uh, but I think all of us are deeply appreciative of how the cooperative program brings us together and fund the things that truly matter to the SBC. Yes, and again, we are so thankful for the development of the cooperative program. As we know, the Lord could cause the gospel to go forth and his word to go forth regardless, but it really, as one who has raised my support before outside of the Southern Baptist Convention for ministry work that I did, it just takes a great burden off of these missionaries to not have to focus on that, but instead to focus on the work that they're able to do with the people that they're called to. Next up is a piece by Casey Huff. He's a pastor and friend out of Texas, and he's responding to the shootings that we've witnessed. And there, as we're recording today, there's been one in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a hospital, just tragic. And it's titled, Weeping Amid the Evils of This World, Mourning the Shootings, Facing Our Mortality, and Hoping in Christ. And he as the title says, he calls us to weep with those who weep, to realize that there's nothing different between those who suffer and those who don't. He's talking about a, a question that Jesus addressed in the Gospels. And basically, we are all forced to face our mortality in a fallen world that we suffer because we live in a world broken by sin. And we are a people who are broken by sin. But Casey calls us to put our hope in Christ in the midst of mourning. And he says, Jesus is the only sinless, innocent, stainless human to ever live, came and took on our sins that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He bids us to come to him in our grief and under the weight of unbearable burdens. He alone has conquered death. And the precious promise we have is that all who are in him will be raised like him when he returns. It is from this posture of hope amid the horrors of this world that we can face our mortality and come alongside others to minister to them and mourn with them in their darkest moments. And that's the truth. The only way we can come alongside others and mourn with them and point them to hope is because of Jesus and because of the rock-solid truth that we have in his life, death, and resurrection. Yeah, absolutely. We— we see these events taking place, and uh, oftentimes we feel hopeless. And I think in the face of a broken world, it, it actually is a reminder that in so many ways, we in, as individuals, we can't do much to prevent uh, these sorts of atrocities. And, and not just that doesn't just uh, pertain to these sorts of mass shootings. 
but other events around the world, you just turn on the news and you can just feel a sense of hopelessness. And it is a reminder, I think, uh, that we need to look towards Jesus, uh, where our true hope can be found and understand that in these times, leaning into the sovereignty of God is actually a place of comfort for us as Christians. And then our final article I want to share with you is by Jason Thacker, and it's titled, Why a Truncated Vision of Religious Freedom is Dangerous to the Common Good. And, you know, it's important as a follow-up to the previous article we just shared because when religious liberty flourishes, we are able to freely share the gospel. Now, again, the gospel and the Word of God cannot be bound. So where religious liberty is suppressed, the Lord still, we still see the gospel going forward and people being saved. But surely we we are appreciative when it is not suppressed. So Jason in this article interacts with Peter Singer, who is a professor and one of the most influential moral philosophers of our generation, Jason says. And I just wanted to read a paragraph for you from Jason's article an older essay, by the way, from 2012. He downplays the full expression of religion in the public square, relegating it to the ability to privately worship as one chooses within a very limited secular framework. While the essay itself may be dated, this is a perfect illustration of the prevailing understanding of the role of religion in society today. Whether it is seen in the overly broad and dangerous content moderation policies concerning hate speech online or in the significant threats to religious freedom under the so-called Equality Act in the United States, religious freedom must be of central concern in our secularizing public square. And thankfully, the Lord is raising up believers to be able to um, intelligently and helpfully speak about religious liberty from a Christian worldview. And I would encourage you to read this article by Jason to understand why as he says, it is an important matter in our day and age. Right, and Jason, Jason ends, as he usually helpfully does when, when talking about religious freedom, why it's so important for Christians to advocate for, go above and beyond and advocate for the dignity of all those around us to practice their faith and operate out of their deeply held beliefs, even if those beliefs clash with our own. This is where Baptists have stood for centuries and uh, just once again, we're, we're carrying that flag forward, and he does a great job unpacking why it is so important in this piece. Well, and we stand there because we believe, as we see from Scripture, that true faith, as Jason says, cannot be coerced, nor can it be walled off in an unseen compartment of one's life. We cannot make people Christians. Only the Holy Spirit can apply the gospel to someone's heart and make a dead heart alive. Only He can bring about eyes open so that they see the gospel for what it is, that they see Jesus for who He is and proclaim Him as Lord. And we want the freedom to be able to do that, to present the gospel to people. And we want them to have the freedom to make a decision for themselves. And of course, we pray that the Spirit would open their minds to the truth of the gospel. So Brent, these are just a few of the articles that we have featured today. Of course, I always urge you listeners to go and look on our site and look at all the different things that we have going on. But for now, that's what's happening at ERLC.com. All right. And now it's time for our look at culture, but I'm doing it alone because Lindsay has left the building. She's kind of like the ERLC's version of Elvis Presley. All right. Our first story comes to us from Baptist Press, and it's about the new recommendations that center on a database and a new implementation task force. 
The story says this, a report issued Wednesday from the Sexual Abuse Task Force includes challenges for Southern Baptist groups toward better abuse prevention policies, as well as two recommendations, including the formation of a website to maintain a record of those credibly accused or convicted of sexual abuse. Those challenges included the request for a $3 million allocation to fund the implementation of sexual abuse reforms over the next year. That allocation will come from cooperative program overages, as well as a portion of the Vision 2025 budget, and through an executive committee recommendation to messengers in Anaheim. The recommendation requiring approval by messengers concerns the creation of a ministry check website for the purpose of maintaining a record of pastors, denominational workers, ministry employees, and volunteers who have, at any time, been credibly accused of sexual abuse. Inquiries into the database would focus on individuals, not a church. The report itself said this, Statistics show that sexual offenders have an 80% recidivism rate. One of the problems in our churches is the ability of abusers to move from one church to another to perpetuate their abuse. This often happens because churches don't have the means to communicate with one another. The Sexual Abuse Task Force is scheduled to deliver its formal report at 1.45 p.m. during the Tuesday, June 14th afternoon session of the SBC annual meeting in Anaheim. I I will say this, just to add to it, uh, these recommendations uh, came out earlier this week, and I immediately shared on, on social media that these recommendations are important. And we all know, coming out of the just horrific uh, report about what all has gone on uh, over the last 20 years, that action is uh, is required. And my hope is that the messengers to the Southern Baptist annual meeting uh, will give due consideration to these recommendations and, and will take action. Uh, that shows that we are serious about confronting abuse, combating it, and serving survivors and making our churches places that are a refuge from abuse. And I will say this, I want to give a special recognition to Dr. Tony Wolf, uh, who is the Associate Executive Director for the Southern Baptists of Texas Convention. Uh, he authored a first-person piece in Baptist Press, and I just wanted to read a little bit of this because I know that there are some members of our audience who are uh, leading their churches, uh, leading various ministries, uh, leading maybe their small groups through just how to still process uh, all that was revealed in that 300-page uh, report on sexual abuse. And Tony writes this, I read every word of the SBC Sexual Abuse Task Force report slowly and prayerfully. My heart was swollen with pain, anger, frustration, and grief. It cannot be denied that our Southern Baptist family has, in many ways and for many years, let down some of our most vulnerable neighbors. Sexual abuse is among the most monstrous of demonic evils, an exploitative assault on the dignity of God's image bearers. And while we should have been working to provide for the needy, the abused, the helpless, which is a direct quote from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, we have failed so many of them miserably. And he goes on to write down seven suggestions for helping congregations process and pray in the aftermath of this report. It's a a great piece, and Lindsay and I both uh, would commend that to you all uh, highly. 
Next, our next story also comes to us from Baptist Press, and it's it's about the RLC and specifically our Psalm 139 project and who we have teamed up with for our most recent ultrasound placement, and that is Benjamin and Kirsten Watson. Uh, they attended a May 27th dedication for an ultrasound machine that they donated to Coweta Pregnancy Services in Noonan, Georgia, through our Psalm 139 project. The Watsons provided funds for both the machine and the staff training that is required to operate it. The Watsons partnered with Psalm 139 in the placement of an ultrasound machine during the 2018 football season at a clinic in New Orleans where Benjamin was playing for the NFL's Saints. They also donated a machine through the Psalm 139 project in 2020 at a pregnancy resource center in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Watson, who played at the University of Georgia, was a tight end for four NFL teams from 2004 to 2019. They both said this in a statement to Baptist Press. After seeing our pre-born children through ultrasound technology, we knew we wanted to provide this life-affirming opportunity to other expecting mothers and fathers. As Georgia residents, we are excited to partner with the Psalm 139 Project once again to support men and women in our area who are making decisions for life. We are grateful for pregnancy resource centers like this one who provide essential services and life-saving care. It is a joy to stand with them. On a personal note, I got to be uh, with the Watsons at a placement that they did uh, near Baltimore because he also played for the the NFL's uh, Ravens football team. And so I traveled up to Maryland to be with them to kind of see the center. And they are just incredible pro-life advocates. And they truly practice what they preach. Uh, they are very public about their marriage and their family and how they are leading their family to truly live out God's word in this life. And, and I am just so thankful. They they are uh, huge partners of the ERLC, and it's great to, to read stories uh, about all that they are doing, just like this one. Our next story comes to us from the Wall Street Journal, and it's taking a look at the baby formula shortage, and it calls it a crisis. New data suggests the U.S. baby formula shortage is deepening particularly hitting states in the South and the Southwest. Nationally, 23% of powdered baby formula was out of stock in the week that ended on May 22nd, compared with 21% during the previous week, according to the latest figures. In the first week of January and before the recall of formula produced by Abbott Laboratories, 11% of powdered baby formula was out of stock because of pandemic-related supply chain shortages and inflation. Before the pandemic, the normal out-of-stock range for powdered formula was 5% to 7%. President Biden met virtually with baby formula manufacturers Wednesday, pledging to continue efforts to speed domestic production as well as import formula from other countries. Quote, we will continue to work around the clock with manufacturers, states, doctors, and families, said Mr. Biden. The CEOs of companies that produce formula said that they had increased production to meet demand, and several used the word crisis to describe the situation. This is for any of our listeners, and, and certainly many of them are in this footprint that are that is mentioned in the story. I'm sure many of them can attest to the fact this is a crisis. And uh, when you are in those early weeks and months of, of rearing a child, if if you can't find formula, uh, that is certainly going to be a very stressful and challenging situation. I read elsewhere uh, that moms in New York are actually getting together to 
more or less pool excess breast milk uh, to be able to serve uh, moms who who might be facing this shortage and in crisis. And and so this is just one of those issues we never would have foreseen coming. Um, it, it was uh, some of this was stressed because of the pandemic, as it was mentioned in the story. But now uh, we we are truly uh, behind the eight ball here. And more and more voices on Capitol Hill are calling for policy solutions. And the administration is trying to do more. Uh, the reality is we need to do everything we can to serve these families uh, that are facing this problem. Earlier in the show, uh, Lindsay had mentioned the horrific shooting that took place uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma this week, where a deranged individual went into a medical facility and specifically up to a, a certain floor in that facility to shoot his doctor that had worked on his back pain, as well as other individuals who, who were there. And, and so just once again, uh, we are confronted with a, a situation of a mass casualty uh, event. And so that leads to our final story here, which is an update on something that we mentioned last week, that a bipartisan group of U.S. senators were getting together to work on legislation. And, and so this, this final story comes to us from Politico, and it says this, a bipartisan group of senators led by Chris Murphy from Connecticut and John Cornyn from Texas is negotiating on a narrow gun control package that focuses on state-based red flag programs, school safety, and mental health programs. The two sides hope to have an agreement in place by next week when Congress returns from the Memorial Day recess. Senator Susan Collins, the leading Republican in the group, sent Politico this statement. We are making rapid progress toward a common sense package that could garner support from both Republicans and Democrats. And that's noteworthy, uh, according to Politico. Rapid progress is not something that you hear too often during thorny and complicated legislative negotiations. So let me step back here and just offer this reminder as we did last week. In 2018, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution on gun violence and mass shootings, and it implored leaders in that resolution to get together and come up with solutions to this issue that combat the underlying social maladies, as well as to pass policies that are consistent with our nation's Second Amendment. And so I use that to say that is what is occurring here? These these leaders are getting together and really trying to, it seems like, make a good faith effort at taking a step towards attempting to reduce uh, these issues. And so this Politico reporting, it goes on to look specifically at Senator Cornyn, who's a Republican from Texas, an evangelical Christian who is in the center of this, as well as Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. And, and it reports uh, on them in this way. Cornyn is the key Republican in the talks. He says here that Congress should make it difficult for people who are, quote, mentally ill or criminals to have guns. It reports convicted felons can't legally buy a gun from a federal firearms licensee, although no background checks are required for private sales. Cornyn also believes Congress should beef up school security. Senator McConnell talks about, quote, two broad categories that the bill should address. Congress, according to McConnell, needs to tackle mental illness and school safety. He says he wants to make some progress on this horrendous problem, consistent with our Constitution and our values. 
Politico goes on to say this, if you read between the lines there, the consistent with our constitution seems to be a nod to the need for red flag laws to include strong due process provisions, which actually we we covered last week about how uh, an individual would be able to contest this in a court of law. Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican from South Carolina, is working with Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, on the red flag language, and they both have promised robust such due process protections. And so really, this is uh, a, an update from from something that we were talking about last week. And it's it's certainly something that I, I know many members of our audience will, will be interested in and watching. And thus far, these negotiations, I, I think, are uh, something to be seen, at least in a positive light, that our leaders are talking to one another and they are seemingly having a constructive dialogue. And that is... Uh, what that 2018 SBC resolution did ask of our leaders to do. So uh, with that, that's your look at This Week in Culture. And now it's time for The Lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, what are you bringing to the lunch table today? Well, you have been giddy all week uh, to get to this section. And so I'm I'm glad you're giddy. Here's the thing. I'm just as giddy about mine. And so... And this is going to say a lot about who the two of us are. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, recently I've been reading about President Eisenhower and his interactions uh, with Billy Graham. And I've just been interested in uh, the relationship and the, the conversation that the two of them have had. And and that just kind of got me exploring down a, you know, rabbit hole, uh, other interactions uh, between prominent SBC leaders and various presidents of the United States. And so I found myself this week on the fourth floor of the SBC building uh, here in Nashville, Tennessee, at the Southern Baptist Historical Library and Archives. And Lindsay, I just have to tell you, I, I geeked out. Uh, because I was pulling documents from the past of the ERLC and uh, the beginning of the cooperative program and presidential letters. And I, I, I think Southern Baptists don't quite understand, and, and, and maybe even if they do, maybe they, they can't quite appreciate uh, unless you've been in our library and archives personally, just how uh, incredible of a resource uh, it is for for me to be able to go and look at original source material and just understand the the words that were uh, used and and what was being communicated. I, I just think that is that's just neat, uh, it, you know, to see these reports that were given uh, back in the 1940s uh, during the SBC annual meetings. We have such a rich history in the SBC. And I am just so thankful for Dr. Uh, Taffy Hall and and her team there who just collect all this material and, and curate it and, and keep it safe. Gosh, what a, what a great uh, part of SBC life. And, and so that's, that is something this week uh, that I've been giddy about, Lindsay. I'm glad you mentioned Taffy, who so skillfully mans those archives and who is always so helpful. Oh, she she is a living fount of knowledge mm-hmm. about I mean one of the first times that I got to interact with her 
is uh, she gave a presentation here at the uh, SBC building uh, to all of the folks who work here about something that the Home Mission Board had in the earlier part of the 20th century where uh, there was just a whole section devoted to helping churches with their building plans. And so that's why so many SBC churches that were built kind of in the first half and mid-century of the 20th century uh, throughout the country all look very similar because they were coming to the Home Mission Board as they had the funds necessary to, to, to build their buildings. And they, they, they wanted them all to look very similar so that Southern Baptists knew as they were traveling around the country, if they were looking for a church, they, oh, well, that's, that's obviously an SBC church. Like, that's just neat. No, and that is at the Library and Archives. That is interesting. Well, while you are spending time in the Library and Archives and reading about Billy Graham and President Eisenhower, I am reading spy novels that have nothing to do with real-life fiction. Okay, but that is not what you're giddy about this week. Yeah, but I, it, it explains to you why I'm giddy. I am reading spy novels with all their action and adventure. Uh-huh. And that leads me to my favorite genre of movie, which is action adventure. And I went and saw the new Top Gun Maverick this weekend. Highway to the danger zone. I was just giddy. I was cheering before. There was a personal message from Tom Cruise. Go see it in Dolby Digital Surround Sound if you can, because your seats will shake when the planes are taking off. It was amazing. I was three when the movie came out. I saw it in my childhood, although I would not let my child watch the original Top Gun, but, you know, I didn't, there weren't many restrictions on my movie watching habits. (laughs) But I, that movie, that soundtrack just reminds me of my childhood, and I'm telling you, I was giddy. Tom Cruise... I pray for his salvation. He is a strange individual, but man, he is the king of the action movies. And now I'm on a Tom Cruise kick. So I've been, I love the Mission Impossibles. I've been going to the Mission Impossibles. And if you do not like the new Top Gun movie, I'm not sure we can be friends. It is incredible. Changed my Zoom background to Top Gun background. The movie is just gives you just all the feels. It is amazing. <laughs> Well, so I I actually got to see it too, and uh, I thought it was, honestly, it was a great summer movie. I would submit it's actually better than the original, and what I loved about it is it kept the the very niche subgenre of Tom Cruise running films alive and well. Uh, There's this whole kind of internet meme about the best Tom Cruise movies are only the ones where Tom Cruise is running. And he does a lot of running in this yeah. in, the, in this movie, and uh, just as he does with most of his action films. And so I'm I'm glad you oh, are giddy Listen. about that this week. I Listen. mean, you have just been oh, I can't wait to oh, get to I the lunchroom section this week. My husband never sees me excited because I'm not like an excitable person. But I, he was like, oh my word, this is crazy. I felt like I was at Disney World for the first time, partly because I hadn't been in the movie theater for so long. But it, the movie was just perfect. It was so great. It was just entertaining. I'm not there for, like, real-life stuff. I just want to be entertained. Now, fast fact, if I could, like, weird jobs, if I could have, like, a crazy job, I would be a fighter pilot, not in combat, because don't want to be in combat. But I would fly those planes and, like, be a trainer or something. Oh, I, I was going to say, I, I think a 
I think a fighter pilot right, exactly. necessarily involves fighting. <laughs> no, uh, I would just train. I, otherwise, maybe. I think it's just a pilot, <laughs> but, which be, is great. We we need those too. <laughs> I would be the original. Like, you, you, who was the girl in the original? What was her name? I don't remember. Who taught the classes? I don't know. Anyway, I can't remember her name <laughs> right now. But I would maybe do that and just be in my bomber jacket and yeah. You just want the classes. you just want the clothes and the aviators. I just want the glory of flying those planes. It's just amazing. So anyway, go see the new movie. It is so fun. There you go. There you go. It's a good week. Yeah. Highway to the danger zone. And then go watch all the Tom Cruise movies that you can that are appropriate. So thanks for coming along on my, my Highway to the Danger Zone adventure, Brent. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.